Hey, thanks, Stephanie. It's really good to see you guys. Everybody's made it. Ah, thanks, survived Thanksgiving, um, survived Black Friday, survived traffic in Atlanta, which is always on my way here. There's a student driver um, going 20 and 35. And I was reminded that I am not perfected in how I practice God's grace for others. Um, so if you're learning how to drive, just there's a speed limit. You can go that fast. It's cool. You can actually, you can actually go five over. Most of the time they let you get away with it. It's a driving tip from me. Uh, we are in a, in a series right now that is really intentionally lined up with the season that we're in, the season of Advent. And Advent is ultimately about the anticipation of something better to come. And specifically, what we are anticipating is the coming of Jesus Christ. So we celebrate his first coming in the manger. We also celebrate his second coming to usher in the eternal kingdom of God and the perfection that we will be called into in glory. And so as we're in this place, I think it's really good that we are in the book of Micah. Micah is a book of the Old Testament. It is a prophet named, surprisingly, Micah. Micah ministered in both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel from about 735 to about 701. And the message of Micah is really simple, that God's people need to be saved and God will save his people. And last week, we really looked and dug into this idea that we need salvation. Advent would have almost no significance if there was nothing to anticipate, right? I don't know if this was a week of anticipation for you. It wasn't our house. So um, Thanksgiving is a big deal for us. My wife cooks food very, very well, and there's always a lot of it. And so the week leading up to Thanksgiving, usually we're pretty light on dinner. It's a little more casual. Um, there's a little bit more of a kind of fend for yourselves with leftovers and whatever's in the fridge because... Thanksgiving's coming. And we want to make sure that we're ready for Thanksgiving. We want to make sure that there's room for the food. We want to make sure that the focus is on the feast that we're going to have. We want to make sure that budget-wise, we can make sure that we have all the turkey and the stuffing. and every, I mean, there was a couple years ago with the stuffing that I was laying on the floor of the, of the dining room for three hours just in physical pain. Um, you can't just casually walk into that. You've got to prep yourself, right? Thanksgiving is about anticipation. And it really mirrors what Micah is calling his people to. And so last week we saw this need to anticipate a savior. We looked at not just the brokenness of God's people, but also the brokenness of sin that permeates our lives and the world that we live into. Our sin, but also the sin of a broken world that surrounds us, right? And so today is good news. Today we're going to look at this reality that Micah is calling to these people that are in a very broken world. We're gonna see that God will save his people. That's what we anticipate. That's what we celebrate at Advent. That's what communion is a reminder of on a weekly basis. This is really the foundation of our faith. It's this truth that God will save his people. And so we're gonna be in Micah chapter four. The way that Micah is set up, it's actually, um, Micah did not necessarily write this book in this order. More likely, what happened was Micah or one of his disciples compiled his teachings in a specific order to transmit a very specific message that God had given Micah for his people. And so there's what's called cycles in this book. There's a cycle of judgment, then there's a cycle of redemption. We, we were right in the middle of the first cycle of judgment last week. And in chapter three, he continues that cycle of judgment to the people in Judah, in the southern kingdom. He says, listen, you guys have worshiped idols. 
You've oppressed the poor. The religious leaders have taken advantage of people and stolen their money to prop up corrupt politicians. It's clearly a thing of the past that never happens in Western society now, right? And he says, because of that, God is going to allow you to eat the fruits of your sin. He's going to bring an army and he's going to destroy the city. He's going to destroy the temple and you will be in exile. And you've got to remember, for the Israelites, so much of their identity was built around these two significant promises of God, the promise of land and the promise of kingdom. The entirety of their national identity had been rooted in this idea that God had given them a land to prosper in and that they would reign over it. So the other side of that covenant was if they worshiped God, he would continue to give them the fulfillment of these promises. But if they didn't, then God would have to break those, those covenants with them because they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. Now, the good news is that's not the covenant we live under, right? That's what's called the old covenant. But this was the dynamic the Israelites were in. And so because of their sin, God said, you know, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be consequences. You will be taken out of the land. And you've got to imagine the weight of that sinking in on these people that had built their lives around these promises that they were going to lose everything. They were going to lose their homes. They were going to lose their cultural identity. They were going to lose their sense of security. And that left them in need of something. So we examine our lives, we, we kind of feel the same way. We can see where sin has broken relationships or our finances or our families. Some of you are like, yeah, our family Thanksgiving is like a reflection of our need for salvation, right? And so we live in this place where the brokenness of a sinful world is pushing in on us and we need a savior, just like God's people did. So we have Micah chapter four. Micah chapter four pivots into this cycle of redemption. And again, this is something of the rhythm of humanity that Micah is teaching us. As people, we tend towards this gravity of sin and evil, and God in his goodness and his grace saves us from ourselves. And that's the anticipation that we're gonna read about here in chapter four, and that's the same anticipation we celebrate when we look to the coming of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in Micah chapter four, and we're going to read and kind of talk about it because this was a prophecy that was written to a people at a time. And if we don't take time to understand it, it's kind of weird and confusing. And so let's go ahead and go. He says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Let's talk about that for a second because you read that and it says the mountain of the Lord will be the highest of the mountains. It's going to be raised up. Is he saying that God is going to literally raise a mountain up to be higher than any other mountain on earth? It's not what it says. Now, could God in his sovereignty do that? Sure, that's just not the image that he's talking about here because we need to understand the image or we lose the meaning. Um, think about imagery we use in like maybe vernacular idioms. Have you ever, so in the business world, have you heard somebody say, we wanna see this business go through the roof? Can you imagine someone in 300 years from another culture reading that with no context and trying to apply it to their lives? Like they're kind of starting their business and they're going, okay, we need to get this thing through the roof. Do we cut a hole in the roof? Do we shoot it through the roof? There's a big argument and they split into two factions, two denominations. You've got the hole in the roof people and the shoot it through the roof people, right? Like which one is it? I don't know. It doesn't say. It's kind of a gray area. Well, clearly, if you read this literally, he says through the roof. So we just shoot it right up there. It doesn't say cut a hole in there. That's liberal thinking. That's insane, right? Like no, we would walk into that and we'd say, guys, 
It's just an expression. It means that you're doing really well. Like, chill out. Put the saw down. It's fine. Call a roofer. We'll get this fixed. You missed the point. This is no different, right? So when he's talking about the mountain of the Lord, there's a literal mountain of the Lord he's talking about. It's Mount Zion. It's the temple mount. It was common, not just in the Near East, but really when you look at humanity across the world, especially in these emerging religions, there's this natural inclination that we have to correlate height and deity. And there's reasons for that, right? Because a mountain that you worship the God on really was communicating a couple of different realities. It communicated the ability to, the ability to ascend and approach a deity, it communicated the way that the God that was being worshiped reigned over all of humanity. And it communicated this idea that this God would bring order to chaos. And so there were a lot of different people around the Israelites that had mountains that they worshiped their gods on, right? Mount Olympus, maybe you've, you've heard of that one. Um, everyone there had a temple on a mountain. It wasn't uncommon. So when this is saying that the mountain of the Lord would be raised above every other house, what he is saying is that the supreme Supremacy and reality of God being the king of the universe would be overwhelmingly obvious to everybody. There would be a day that no one would ask the question, who's the true God? What's the right God to worship? What God's the strongest? He's saying it's going to be settled. There's coming a day that no one will wonder who we worship. There's coming a day where no one will wonder, is God real? Is he really who he says he is? Should we really worship this God? I just, I don't see him. I don't really, I, I, I don't think he's that powerful. He's saying, listen, there's going to be a day where it's going to be obvious that God is the ruler and creator of the universe and all people will flow to his mountain and worship him. There's coming a day that in his sovereignty, God will settle this idea of relevance. Was God relevant to my life? You can't help but notice who he is because he'll be lifted up above every religion, every way of thinking, every earthly kingdom. This is a metaphor, right? And it's communicating a spiritual reality about who God is. He's saying there's gonna be a day that God will be the highest, most valued, most affected, most obvious point of everyone's worship and hope. You can't deny it. We live in a world that that's not true yet, right? He's saying, but it's coming, it's coming. Especially, listen, in our culture, we don't have competing gods. We've just kind of pushed gods and thrown them in the closet, right? Like post-enlightenment, that's silly. We have science now. We don't need the Lord. It's not a question of do we worship another god. It's really a question of do we worship human progress or the individual or, or kind of go Oscar Wilde and just say we worship whatever feels good, right? Like there's all of these different gods that we've lifted up. We've said, I don't know that God really is that important to my life. I mean, it's nice they go to church, but I don't, I don't know that it's really that important. And we chase kind of these earthly kingdoms. Micah opens by saying there's hope because there's coming a day where we don't have to wonder. We don't have to doubt God. It'll be obvious and everybody can see it. He says, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. 
for all the people's walk, each in the name of, his, of its own God, but we will walk in the name of our Lord God forever and ever. This is really key because here's what he's just done. He's framed a temporal boundary around the kingdom of God. He says it'll be eternal. He says it'll be eternal. There will be a day that all of the effects and remnants and brokenness of sin won't exist. Those will pass away and the reality of the kingdom of God will allow his people to walk in peace for eternity. He's giving you a system. He's saying, listen, we don't wait on God for a temporary earthly kingdom. There is coming an eternal kingdom that will reflect his goodness, his superiority over sin and his salvation for all of eternity. He just raises the stakes and says, this is why God is better. This is why we wait on God to save us because we don't have to wonder if there's a term limit. We don't have to wonder if one day there's gonna be a force that raises up that knocks God off his throne and institutes a new kingdom. All of the problems that the people of God were dealing with, he's saying, here's why God is superior. Nobody else is gonna come take him. So remember, he's promising them in chapter three some judgment. Um, The geopolitical situation that they lived in. The kingdom of Israel was a relatively small kingdom at the time. It was never a superpower. It was always surrounded by superpowers, either Egypt in the south or Assyria and Babylon in the north and to the east a little bit. And so at this time, the Neo-Assyrian Empire is in geopolitical ascendancy. They're a lot like what we would say China is today. It's a rising superpower. Uh, There was a great king named Sennacherib. He actually, I think, kind of gets a bad rap. He had some great ideas, built a lot of good stuff. He just had a little bit of a temper. And so because of that, you see him start to collect all of these vassal states that had decided to rebel. Some people would call him a tyrant. Others would say he was just strong on national security and had a good sense of world order. It kind of depends on what side of the border you lived on, right? And so they have the probably in that era first standing professional army that was going around just conquering everyone. And over time, they were moving towards the kingdom of Judah. Part of that was because the northern kingdom decided that they would throw their lots in with some people and rebel against them. And he just didn't, um, the Neo-Assyrians didn't take to dissent well. The concept of free speech and protest didn't translate to the society, okay? They just came in and murdered everyone and said, any other questions? And the people left said, no, we're good. That's what happened to the northern kingdom. And so the people of Israel were used to these temporary kingdoms that could be knocked off and toppled at any time. The idea of peace and prosperity were fairly temporal and not guaranteed at any point because there were all of these threats. I think our peace and prosperity is just as fragile. It's just attacked differently, right? And so when we look at our peace and prosperity, we are blessed to live in a place that from a geopolitical standpoint is fairly stable, at least when you look at human history, but there's all of these other places that wanna attack the little kingdoms that we build up. Our health, man, is so temporary. Sickness and disease are a consequence of a broken and fallen world. And at any time, our peace could be disrupted when our health goes sideways. Our finances, we love to build our kingdom around our finances. You just don't always know what's gonna happen with a business, with the markets. You, you, You cannot control what happens with your money. We like to think we can, but at any point, our financial stability could very quickly be under threat, right? Our relationships, the the kingdoms of relationship that we have, and none of these things are inherently evil. It's just they're temporary, and at any point, they can go away. The difference in God's salvation and all of these lesser salvations that the world offers is that God's salvation is eternal. They await an eternal kingdom, and so do we. Jesus didn't just come for right now. 
There are good things that happen right now because of Jesus, but the primary goal of the kingdom of God is not for us to have a good life here on earth, right? The primary goal of the kingdom of God is that we will have an eternal peace in which God is glorified and reigns over all of his people. Look at the descriptions of God's eternal kingdom here. Nations aren't fighting. People are content. There's actually a really interesting line. If you read it, it talks about how each man will sit under his tree with his fig. Here's what that idea is communicating. Everybody has enough. It doesn't say each man will have his mansion and all of his fig trees, right? It doesn't say that each man will have millions and millions and millions. It says that everybody will have exactly what he needs. In the kingdom of God, there's not a need for capitalism or competition because everybody will have exactly what they need and be content with it. There's this sense of peace and prosperity and hope that happens in God's eternal kingdom that Micah's calling his people to long for. And I wonder, when we think about Advent, what is it revealing that we're longing for? Do we understand that the eternity of God is going to supersede anything that you're going to see on Cyber Monday? Right, like it's "Ah, funny, let me just ask you a question. What do we spend more time focused on right now? I was looking at some sales yesterday and they were really, really good, right? Like, oh, I, might, I really need that vest. And, and my son's like, yeah, if you were at grandma's land in Texas for three months, here you'd look like a weirdo, which is helpful advice from my middle schooler, right? <laughs> what does Advent reveal that we long for? What does Advent reveal that we long for? When we can root our hope and longings in an eternal kingdom, we see a peace of God and a hope that the world can't offer us. Micah opens with this reminder that there's coming a kingdom beyond what we can imagine it's going to last forever. There's salvation that's coming for us. He goes on to say in verse 6, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. In the lame, I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. More likely than not, that's talking about the continuation of the family of King David ruling Israel, which we know Jesus, again, descendant of King David, will rule over Israel forever. So even here, there's this little nod, this little prophecy to the Savior King who's coming, right? He says, now, why, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So this is fascinating because God asks them a couple rhetorical questions. He says, Don't you have a king? Is there no counselor? God's people would be saying at the time that this prophecy was referring to, well, no, we don't have one. We've been exiled. Our land is gone. We've been stolen. We've been put in Babylon, which is kind of weird because if you've been paying attention, you're like, wait a second, I thought it was the Assyrians. Why why is he talking about Babylon? There's really two reasons. So number one, the Neo-Assyrian Empire did really, really well until they didn't. And then Babylon came and just took everybody over in a very unique way. They kind of took it to a different level, okay? So number one, this is a prophecy for God's people who had been taken away from Judah into Babylon in about in the 500, so about 200 years from this prophecy. Here's the second reason. When you read the word Babylon in ancient Near Eastern literature, it's not just talking about a place. 
It's talking about some values and some cultural realities. We do this too. So if I was to say to you, man, that place kind of had an LA vibe to it, right? Like everybody kind of does this in this part of the country because you know what I mean, right? Just terrible traffic, smog, it's overcrowded. They've just got some weird stuff they eat. Like it's just, when we say LA, West Coast, there's some values that go along with that, right? And you do the same thing on the East Coast. Oh man, New York, or oh, the French, am I right? Right, like we, we understand this in, in through our lens because we get all of the cues that go along with these geographic places, so it makes sense to us. He's doing the same thing here. Babylon was a literal place that God's people would be exiled to. It also was synonymous with some stuff. It was synonymous for really, especially through the lens of the Israelites, the ways of the world. So it was synonymous with pagan gods. It was synonymous with military might. It was synonymous with material prosperity. It was synonymous with sex. All of everything that you would categorize under the kingdom of the world was represented by Babylon because it was the antithesis of the values that God had called his people to have. So when you read Babylon, he's saying that in the midst of the place that is the antithesis of who God is, God will save his people. So if they're reading this, this is simultaneously confusing, but also giving them hope because it's teaching us this, that even the shadow of this present darkness is not gonna snuff out the hope we have in salvation. The people reading this would have had no hope the audience that he is talking about, imagine where they would be. Imagine being ripped away from your home and stolen and taken somewhere across the world that had vastly different values and languages and, and really a little bit of a prejudice towards you because you had been taken over by them. These people had nothing. All of the promises of God would have seemed like they failed. They probably would ask questions like, has God abandoned us? Is God real? Does God not care about my pain? Does God not care about the, the death that's happened in the wake of our sin? Does God, does, does God exist? We haven't been exiled in a literal sense, but we've been exiled in a spiritual sense. And we ask a lot of these same questions. And so for some of us, when we approach Advent and we have this idea of hope and anticipation of salvation, it really kind of just can seem like a game that we play at church because we were pressed by the reality of sin and suffering. And so we don't just hear the hope and message of salvation in a vacuum. We hear it in a place where we have some very real doubts about who God is. Maybe, maybe, you know, the job market has turned sour and you're like, I don't know how I'm gonna provide for my family. Maybe you're in the midst of being ravaged by addiction or shame. Maybe it's a relational trauma that's only amplified at this time of year. Maybe, maybe it's mental health. Maybe it's just, there's a litany of ways that the reality of a broken world feels like it's so dark that the hope of salvation has been extinguished. That's where God's people are. This audience is at a place where the hope of salvation has been extinguished for them. They said, I guess we're just gonna live in Babylon now. I guess we have no hope. I guess we have no king. I guess all of the promises that God made us just aren't real. As Christians, we feel that way. Well, I, I followed Jesus and now my life is worse. I followed Jesus, then a divorce happened. I followed Jesus, I don't know how I'm gonna pay my bills next month. I followed Jesus and my family's a nightmare. I followed Jesus and my kids have completely gone sideways and I don't know what to do. I followed Jesus, but I'm still addicted. Where's the hope of salvation? Look at what he says. 
He says, you shall be rescued and redeemed from the hand of your enemies. At the top, he actually kind of expounds on it. So it's a little bit backwards because the end is at the beginning. He says, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away. And those whom I'm afflicted and the lame, I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and when? And forever. He reminds them there's this eternal reality where God will gather the remnant of his people and save them. Since salvation is even at the darkest point, God hasn't forgotten you. Even at the lowest place where sin seems like it's gonna win, God swoops in and saves and will reign over his people. This idea of a remnant was a very common idea in the ancient Near East. And so this idea of a remnant is that the people still exist, so there's still hope. And so this is a dual prophecy, right? Because here's what we know. At some point, the Babylonians are overtaken by who? Anybody? Okay, it's the Persians. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the Persians. Um, we, we play them on Tuesday in the World Cup. And so the Persian Empire has a little bit of a different perspective on foreign policy. They, they were probably a little more relaxed with people doing their own thing a little bit. And so what happened under the Persians is that a remnant of God's people were able to go back into the land and to rebuild the temple and re-inhabit what had been lost for them. That was a shadow of God's promise for his people. But listen, he also is making a promise for a future salvation after that because here's what we know. He says that he's gonna bring all of the lame and afflicted together and he would rule over them forever. Here's why that can't just be about literal Israel because after they went back into the land and rebuilt the temple, they made somebody angry a couple of years later and they were called the Romans and they were a little more Assyrian in their foreign policy. They had a little bit less tolerance. Um, that's not true. They were tolerant until you didn't want to listen to them, which seems reasonable to me as Enneagram 8. I'm like, yeah, what's the problem, right? And so what happened is Rome marched into Jerusalem in 70 AD and leveled everything again. Jesus actually prophesied that that would happen. After Rome leveled everything, God's people kind of just spread out and were scattered to the wind a bit. And to really just fast forward through world history, um, everything fell apart. Then the Europeans came and took it back. Then they lost it post-Crusades. Then World War II happened, and we thought remaking the nation of Israel would be a pretty peaceable idea that everybody in the Middle East would be fine with, right? That didn't work out so well. And so here's what we know. If he's talking about a kingdom from Zion that he would reign over for all of eternity, it couldn't have just been the return of the Israelites because that kingdom didn't last forever. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the kingdom that will be eternal, the kingdom that will be ushered in by this king, King Jesus, who will reign forever. And so what we see here is this promise, not just to the Israelites, but to the world, that a day is coming that all of God's people, who aren't just the Israelites, but all of God's people that are in places of oppression and places of brokenness and hopelessness will be gathered to a point where they will be led and ruled over by a king who loves them. Salvation is coming, even in hopelessness. The hope of salvation isn't snuffed out. He goes on, he says, how many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let our gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I shall make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain 
to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. So this is probably zooming back into a little bit of a short-term prophecy because what's going to happen with Sennacherib, he's the Neo-Assyrian king. This is the right now that this sermon is being given. At some point decides he wants to march on Jerusalem. And here's what we know when you read kings, when you even read some extra biblical histories, is this Neo-Assyrian empire is massive. Okay, so imagine, um, imagine if Georgia Tech would have won yesterday. Okay, that's 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 pretty much the odds. Um, Georgia Tech being the Israelites, that's not a pro Georgia Tech statement. It just works in the analogy. Hear me, um, Georgia Tech being the Israelites and Georgia being the Assyrians, like those were the odds for Jerusalem when they were surrounded by this massive professional army. Okay, and so here's what we know. God's people were in danger right then. Jerusalem was surrounded and they could have all been wiped out very easily. What ended up happening is that an angel of the Lord, because the king repents, goes out and slaughters the Neo-Assyrians while they're sleeping. There's a couple of different perspectives on this. Some people have said, well, no, a plague happened and I'll kill them. Listen, does it really matter how God did it? What we know is that God wiped them all out. It could have been a plague. It could have been an angel. It could have been an F-16 for all we like. We don't know. We don't know. Okay, But what we do know is that God destroyed the army that was threatening his people. Why did he do that? Because it's a picture of how God fights for his people. And this is my last point. God destroys our enemies. God fights for and destroys the enemies of his people. What's our enemy? The New Testament reframes a little bit. Do you remember what it says? Our enemy is not flesh and blood. What is it? It's principalities and powers. Our enemy is evil. Our enemy is the sin that eats away at us and tears us apart. Our sin are the forces of darkness who wants to destroy all things that God has called good. We see this picture of who God is in the Old Testament. God delivers his people from their enemies. And so Micah is giving God's people this promise of salvation that's coming. He's saying there's going to be a time that God saves his people the darkness and brokenness of the world doesn't snuff out those promises. God will fight for and deliver you. So we saw in history now, we can see how God fought for the Israelites and did everything that he promised he would for them. Now, on this side of the first coming of Jesus, we can come to Advent and celebrate how Jesus entered the world and ushered in this new age of salvation, this new covenant where God has said, if you have faith in Jesus, then you will have eternal life. There's no conditions. Because you have faith in Jesus, you'll be rescued from your sin and be given eternal life. That's the new covenant. That's how God has delivered us from our enemies. Not through an army, not through politics, not through, not through money, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, sin has been defeated. So as we approach Advent, this is this reminder that God saves his people. This is our hope, is that we've been delivered from our sin. In the midst of whatever low point we're at right now, the cross is still true. We aren't done yet, right? There's a second coming that we anticipate. There's a second coming that we're waiting on to usher in the eternity that Micah talked about in 735 BC. We're still waiting on it. It's coming, but we believe it's here. And so when we come today into Advent, this is a time for our faith to translate into hope. These aren't abstract ideas. This isn't symbolism where we're like, man, this is kind of like one day the human condition all over. This is not what it is. We actually believe that God is the king of the universe. We actually believe that Jesus is a son of God, was fully man and fully God, died on the cross for our sins, rose three days later, ascended into heaven, and one day he's actually coming back to usher in eternity. This is a real hope that we have. 
And it's easy for us to lose sight of that in the midst of a broken world, but this is a reminder that even in the midst of our exile, this hope is real and sustains us and calls us to worship and changes how we view money and relationships and changes how we view our mission. It changes how we dream. It changes what we trust. The hope of Jesus sustains us through suffering, and that's what we celebrate here in Advent. And so this morning, we're gonna do that again by taking communion. It's this tangible reminder next to the first Advent candle, that's not a calendar, next to the first Advent candle that we've lit, we have this tangible reminder of what it means that God has delivered us. As we read the words of God in the lens of the Old Testament, we do it through the way Jesus taught us to interpret it. That this is the beginning of God's grand plan for salvation that culminated in Jesus Christ. And that we have not just the hope of Jesus now, but the hope of the Jesus that's to come. And so I don't know what it is that you're facing this morning, but you can face it with the hope of eternity. Not because of what we've done, not because, you know, we have lived right or have tried really hard to be good people or because we're American or because whatever blank you want to fill in, but because of Jesus. We have this hope that will be rescued and that we have an eternity that will be prosperous. And so today, as we continue to celebrate Advent, we're gonna celebrate by taking communion. And as we do this, it's this reminder of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to have an eternal hope, and how we can trust that God will save us. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come to you and hear you through the inspired word of God that is an authority over our lives. And God, because of that, you speak to us through your word and through your spirit. And God, you've, you've clearly spoken that we have this hope that goes beyond our strength and our morality and the little kingdoms that we've set up. And so God, we just pray that as you continue to call your people to know you and trust you, that you would work in our hearts, that you would work in our minds, and that you would root our hope firmly in you and nothing else. Let this be an Advent season where we truly desire and anticipate your eternal kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.